Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. You can follow along on page 8 of your bulletin. But first, let's pray for illumination. Dear Lord God, in your light, we see light. Thank you for your word, which gives light to the eyes of our souls. Bless and strengthen Pastor Mike as he opens your word to us now. And bless each one of us as we listen. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Genesis 4. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. A couple of public service announcements. Sylvia has copies of the manuscript. I know some of you don't speak English as your first language or you want to think about these things later, so get her attention as she goes by. And I also want to give a shout out to my friend Sharon from my other church family, Mount Zion Baptist, where I worshiped for the first half of this year while I was on sabbatical. Sharon, could you stand up for a second? I just want to, I'm sorry to call you out like this, but. 
Thank you. Let's give Sharon a hand because I want to give Mount Zion Baptist the church. And if you would take a message back, um, we love you and we'll be back. I'm going to be back to visit one of these days. But please send my love and our love and some of us are going to visit again. Well, this isn't really a story about love we have this morning. It's quite the opposite. So let's get into this grim story. When I was in seminary, it seems like about a million years ago, Beth and I were house parents in a halfway house for single mothers. It was a ministry to women who had experienced trouble in their lives, often trouble in the form of abusive husbands and abusive violent boyfriends. And they were trying to get away, trying to get back on their feet, and they had the added challenge of trying to do that and raise children as single parents. So we welcomed them, we often sat down to meals with them, and we tried to bring the gospel into their lives, and we talked about the Bible with them when we ate together. And one day we were talking about the story of Cain and Abel, and one of the little girls living in the house, Melissa, absolutely amazed us with her interpretation and explanation of this story. She was only about seven, but the wheels turned. She had a brain. She said, I know why Cain killed Abel. He was the older brother. When Eve got pregnant with him, she still had some of that poison from the apple she ate in her system, and it got into Cain, and that's why he was bad, and that's why he killed his brother. And I thought that was a fascinating combination of theology, pharmacology, a little dash of Disney fairy tale, all blended together in a fertile seven-year-old imagination. And you know what? It's not all that far from the truth. It's not a story about a chemical that poisons Eve's offspring, but it is the story of a soul-deep corruption that infects the whole human race and becomes part of our spiritual DNA that repeats from generation to generation. Cain is the firstborn of fallen Eve and fallen Adam, and he is made in their image. He is a child of the curse. Genesis 3 which we studied last week, is about Adam and Eve's fall into sin, where it all started. That's a massive turning point in the story of humanity, even though it comes so early in the story. That's where it all begins. That's where the curse enters, and that changes everything. From now on, from that moment on, it's no longer the story, the pleasant story of a beautiful creation. And it is good. It is good. It is very good. It's the often gruesome and violent story, the long, hard story of redemption in which there are so many, this is not goods. Genesis 3 describes the cause. Genesis 4 begins to describe the effects. The blessings God intended for humanity are now eclipsed and strangled by the curse. Thorns and thistles are what grows from the ground. Deceit and violence penetrate to the deepest and most intimate core of human relations, even between husband and wife, 
brother and brother. The curse chokes out the blessing. Adam and Eve can indeed be fruitful and multiply. They still have it in them. But when they do, one of their offspring exterminates the other. So the prospects for humanity under the curse are bleak. The parallels between the two stories in Genesis 2 and 3 and Genesis 4 are pretty remarkable. There's the creation of new life in both stories. God creates two human beings, a man and a woman, in Genesis 2. In Genesis 4, the man and the woman have two sons. Their sons enter into and live out the same three relationships that Adam and Eve were in, a relationship with God, a relationship with one another, and a relationship with the rest of creation. Adam's calling was to till the earth and keep it. Now with two human offspring, these callings diversify. One son becomes the tiller, and the other son becomes the keeper, the keeper of sheep. But it's the same calling, just multiplying a little bit. In both stories... God speaks to the human beings about how they should live. The combination of a command and a warning to Adam, you, Adam and Eve, you may eat from any tree except this one. If you eat from this one, you'll die. With Cain, the dialogue is a little longer, but it has the same essential shape. If you do well or if you do good, you will be accepted. But if, you, if not, then sin is crouching at the door and it's hungry for you and you have to master it. In both cases, the implication is clear. Listen and you will live. Don't listen and you'll be in deep trouble. And in both stories, there's a disastrous act of disobedience when human beings don't listen to God. Followed by another harder conversation with God. In each story, God asks almost the same penetrating questions. Adam, where are you? That question stimulates some thinking. Cain, where is your brother? Let that sink in. And then a harder question comes. And again, let it sink in. What have you done. And what can't you undo? And then finally, that sinking in, God imposes the consequences that must follow. God pronounces the inevitable curse. To Adam it was, cursed is the ground because of you. With Cain, the alienation between humanity and creation deepens. Now you are cursed from the ground. And for the first time, God's curse, which had already fallen on the serpent and on the earth, now falls on a human being. Cursed are you from the ground. There's one more thing that these two stories have in common, and I don't know what else to call it except the sense of tragedy. One of the things that makes tra a tragedy tragic is the scope of the disaster that falls on the main characters. This isn't just one thing that happens. It's one thing that changes just about everything. Evil descends on an epic scale, and nothing is ever the same. 
But another thing that makes tragedy tragic is that you can clearly see that it didn't have to go the way it did. There is a flaw, a deep and telling flaw in the characters, but there was also the potential for something better. Eve could have listened to God and not the serpent. Cain could have listened to God and turned out like his brother Abel, but that's not how the stories went. And that deepens the sense of loss. It's not just the story of a misery that settles in like a toxic black fog, but it's also the story of a goodness that might have been and that now will never be. Even though, even, even through the darkness of the curse, this story lets us see the outlines of a better possibility that we were created for. In fact, in the story of Cain and Abel, we see something new, something else that is fundamental to being human, a new insight into the purposes for which human beings were created. We were created to be priests, to receive what the earth brings forth under God's blessing that still lingers even through the fog of the curse, and to offer those things to God. Cain and Abel each do that. It's in their DNA. It's in their instincts. It's what they want to do and need to do. And if you think about it, this story doesn't really pay that much attention to Abel. I'm going to come back to Abel later, but for now, let's stick with the story, with what the story does say, and let's keep the focus more on Cain like the story does. I can't tell you, I can't come right out and say that Abel earned God's favor and Cain didn't, because the text doesn't really say why Abel's offering was accepted, but it does give us some insight into why Cain's offering wasn't accepted. So that's what I'll focus on. There's a difference in Cain's offering and Abel's. And just for full disclosure, I'll say not all the commentators on this story agree, but I think I'm following the text right here. Cain, it says, gave some of the fruit of the ground. When it talks about Abel's offering, it's a lot more elaborate. Abel offered the first fruits of his flocks and the choicest portions, the fat portions. To my mind, the text is clearly making a qualitative distinction between these two offerings. And it doesn't come right out and say it, but I think it implies that the quality of a person's offering shows what's in their hearts. Where your treasure is, <clears throat> that's where your heart is. You know who said that, right? Jesus said, where your treasure is. Your treasure, your, what you offer to God is a barometer of where your heart is. And Cain, we see trouble. We see all the anxiety and insecurity that human beings live with, the same tendency towards selfishness that human beings have that we've already talked about in this sermon series. In Cain, we get a clear view of the darkness that lurks in every human soul. He has the same need for affirmation and validation that every human being has, but that need gets so distorted and exaggerated and turned in the wrong direction that he ends up making, in effect, a bloody sacrifice, not on the altar of the Lord, our Creator, but on the altar of his own wounded pride and the lust for revenge that his pride generates. God warned Cain about this 
about the danger that he was in. Sin is crouching at the door. It's the language of predatory beasts, lions, bears, jackals. It hungers and thirsts for you. It lusts for you. That's literally what the Hebrew says. It desires to possess you, but you must master it. Instead, it masters Cain. And the serpent is never again really visible in these stories. But Cain more or less embodies the heart and the mind and the intent of the serpent. He speaks lies. He causes death, just like the one who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He becomes a liar and a murderer. And for all this, Cain gains nothing except a deeper curse upon himself and a deepening curse for his descendants. He becomes a wanderer, alienated from God, from his fellow human beings, and even from the earth itself. All his relationships are broken. And five generations later, we see that the cycle of alienation and violence and murderous pride is only escalating. We didn't read all the way to the end of the chapter, but the story, just a few verses later, records like a boastful piece of slam poetry, the song of Cain's great-great-grandson, Lamech. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And the story goes on. Where will all this end up? If we plot out the trajectory of the human race, of Eve and Adam's seed after the fall. Cain's spiritual DNA seems to play into a kind of toxic moral Darwinism, the survival of the meanest, the rise of the most deceitful and vengeful and boastful. This story should really spell the end. The human race on this trajectory should self-destruct. And from some angles, you'd have to say that maybe we still will, that maybe we're not even out of the woods yet. Just read the news every day. But don't do that too much. Or don't, don't do it without reading this story. Because in the, even in this miserable story, there's hope. It's a hope that has nothing to do with our ability to master sin. With all due respect to John Steinbeck and his wonderful novel, East of Eden, which engages this story so deeply. And everyone should read it, and I'll come back to it in a minute. But if there's any hope for the human race, it doesn't come from us. It comes from God. The story of our hope always starts with two words, two ideas, but God. This story would have ended already in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve deserved to die. They did the thing that God said, if you do that, you will die. But God spared them and even promised them a way out of their darkness. Cain would not have even had a second chance after his first failed sacrifice. But God kept talking to him. But God encouraged him to do better, to be better, to offer a better sacrifice. But Cain wouldn't listen. That's the problem. For every but God, there's an also but us. But Cain 
offered the worst possible sacrifice. But God keeps talking, keeps acting, keeps seeking fallen sinners. But God, even though Cain killed his brother, kept talking to Cain. Cain deserved all the things he was afraid of. He deserved the retribution that his crimes deserved. But God spared him. But God protected him. But God let him live. And as long as he lived, he still had the chance to turn back to God. He was wrong that he was completely cut off from the face of God. But as the story plays out, Cain's offspring produces a toxic, fratricidal, self-exterminating culture, escalating violence. But God, even then, even so, even still, but God makes a new start. The last, the very last part of Genesis 4 goes like this. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Set which means appointed. For she said, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel because Cain killed him. But us. Yes, there's a but God, but there's a but us. But you, but me, but oh, the whole human race. Because that new story that begins with set also quickly spirals downward. It leads to another self-destructive human culture and another judgment that was enough to wipe out the whole human race, and it would have been, but God spared Noah. And we'll get there next week. But this is the whole repeating story of the human race. Ever since the fall, we've had the same struggle in our heart that Cain has had individually and collectively. Sin is crouching at our door. It's hungry for us. It desires to possess us with the same fierce desire that men and women have for each other. Sin lusts for us, and we must master it. But the truth is, we cannot. John Steinbeck is simply wrong. All of the optimists about human nature are simply wrong. John Steinbeck wants God's speech to Cain to mean thou mayest. He wants God to be saying, you have it in you, Cain, to win against sin. But Cain didn't. Noah didn't. Even Abraham didn't. And you don't. And I don't. God says, you must master sin. And in a sense, God is right. We must. That's what we must do. That's our moral obligation to our Creator. But the truth is, we can't. Is there another but God here? Yes, there is. And it's the biggest one of all. We don't really get it in all its fullness until the New Testament. We get hints of it, but it never seems to stick. But God appointed Seth to replace Abel. But God saved Noah, but God called Abraham, but God let Israel out of, the, out of the, the land of Egypt, out of slavery and into the promised land, but God brought the people back from exile, but they, but we, but you, but I always fail. We always lose the battle against our sinful human nature, but God has an answer to this recurring nightmare of sin and the deadly, violent, poisonous fruit that always springs from the root of our sinful human nature. But 
God gave his only son, his innocent, sinless son, into the hands of a world full of canes. But God let his son become the ultimate, most horrifyingly wronged victim of human sacrifice. It was an act of perverted justice like none this earth has ever seen. But out of it, but God brought forth justice. It was pure evil, aimed at the final destruction of the whole human race. If Satan could have won that victory, mission accomplished. But God brought righteousness out of that pure evil. God made the one who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me come back to Abel for a minute. In the story we read, Abel is hardly even a character. His name means something like a mere breath, a nothingness. He doesn't get a speech from his parents when he's born. He's just, Abel. He's one of the most shadowy figures in the Old Testament, though he does come back in the New Testament. By faith, Hebrews 11, the first person mentioned in that list of witnesses, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice to God. But in this righteous act of offering a better sacrifice, Abel, like another very shadowy figure in the Old Testament, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And a glimmer of the gospel shining through that fog of the curse. In this story, Abel points us to Christ, an innocent victim who offers a better sacrifice. And a high priest who truly takes away the sin of the world once and for all. And in that sacrifice, the death of Jesus on the cross, we are released from the prison of sin. And the curse of the law and the endless impossible struggle to overcome sin by our own effort. We simply can't. Woe to me, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. The good that I want to do, I do not do. And the evil that I do not want, this is what I find myself doing. But God. Here's one of my favorite, maybe my most favorite, but God moments in the whole New Testament. From Romans 11. After Paul has hammered into us over and over that no one has ever been able to overcome sin. No one will ever, can ever, has ever been justified by obeying the law. No one can ever be justified by their own efforts. Paul tells us where God's taking that futility and that frustration and that impossibility. But God has bound everyone, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. But God is ready. And God is able. And God has provided a way to have mercy on us all. This is the gospel. This is as clear as you're ever going to see it. And if you haven't embraced that with your own faith, you need to talk to me after this service. You need to come 
to this God who is always ready to overcome your, but I did this, but I did that, but this is how I am, but I love you, but I gave you my son, but I want you even more than sin wants you. Someone say amen to that. Where does all of this lead us? I'll tell you where it leads the Apostle Paul. It leads him, first of all, to a big song of praise. It's just the beginning of that song. This is how Romans 11 ends. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. And here's the end of that song. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him Be the glory forever. One more time, people. Amen. But Paul's just getting warmed up because here's the punchline. Here's the practical implication of God's mercy. This isn't just so that you can get into the waiting room of heaven. This is so that you can be what you were created to be. Here's the beginning of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And this is your spiritual or your logical or your proper or your this is only right act of human worship. Now we can offer to God an acceptable sacrifice. Now we can be the priests we were created to be. Now we can offer ourselves, ourselves, forget whatever else the earth brings. We can offer ourselves to God as the first fruits and the last fruits and the everything else fruits of our lives because we have already been accepted in the beloved Son. And if you want just one idea of what that looks like in practice and what kind of living human culture that calls for. Let me read you this passage from the Sermon on the Mount, which I never, ever connected before to the story of Cain and Abel. But it raises the same issues that Cain and Abel's story raises. And it it talks about anger and revenge and our relations with one another and the way we bring our offerings to God. Listen to this. This is right after Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. This is what that fulfillment looks like to Jesus. You have heard that it was said to your ancestors, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or a sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a sister or a brother, you will be liable to the council. And if you say to someone, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So, when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother or your sister And then come and offer your gift. And this is what turns the curse on its head. And what shakes out the bitter fruit of the curse. And produces the fruit of what God really wants. The new commandment Jesus gives. 
is a command that leads to life. This is my command that you love one another. This is the law fulfilled. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone asks you to forgive them, do that. And don't just do it up to seven times or 77 times. 70 times, seven times. Even more times than Lamech wanted to be avenged. You must forgive. The cycle of escalating violence must be replaced by an escalating cycle of mercy and love. This is what God is like. This is what God does. This is how God has acted to save us and how he's acting still. And this is what he invites us into. This is my commandment that you love one another, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord.